Got to say happy birthday before we start the show to Debian. Debian turned 23 today. Happy birthday, Debian, and uh, we'll be talking more about it later in the show. They have a really cool timeline we'll be covering. It is Debian Day. Let's start the show, everybody. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 158 for August 16th, 2016. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's celebrating Debian's 23rd birthday. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. I am really looking forward to today's show. We have a fun show lined up. we got a bunch of really, really good updates from the community we're going to get into. Mr. Sipes is here from, or formerly from, the Mycroft Project to give us an update hey on what he's, going, what he's doing. We have some really good Firefox news, which yeah. is like the oh, first time I've got to say that for a while. Warms my heart. It does, doesn't it? It feels really good. And then I'm going to throw a challenge in Wes's face to see if he can get something Uh-oh. done by the end of the show. Then later on in the show, we're going to celebrate Debian's birthday by talking about perhaps what the future holds for Debian and uh, where Debian may be going and where some of the places it's come from. And a little look at the Debian timeline, which is super fascinating. Really some good stuff to share with you guys. And then uh, we'll wrap it all up and see how Wes does on the challenge. So the question is going to be coming in pretty soon because uh, rumors have it that uh, your friends in Cupertino will be releasing a new MacBook soon. Hey, oh, it's been about time. <laughs> yeah, jeez, it is ridiculous. And you know what's going to happen? The, the uh, current models, which are still perfectly usable, will go up on eBay and people can buy them for a reduced price. Right. And uh, we have a pretty common question that comes into the show. How do you install Linux on the MacBook? Does it work? What should I know about? So this week... Is it worth the amount of effort that might be required? Have you ever done this before? You know, I have, but it's been... Oh, boy, probably three three years at least. So this week... uh, Actually, I was installing Debian. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Great. Uh, I'm going to see if by the end of the show, Wes can get uh, Arch Linux or maybe Fedora Linux, where we'll see, running on a MacBook. It's like a late 2013 model, I think. And we'll kind of give you a report of what it's like to try it, if he can get the dedicated graphics working, the wireless working, and we'll give you a review. So that way, some people out there, they just want that hardware. And this is an old production rig that we have that's like, it's good. I'd like to see if you could leave... Mac OS on okay, there, because yep. I think a lot of people are going to want to do that. Based on the emails we've received, yes, people want to do a boot, and I can understand that. Yeah, absolutely. And if so, you want to do firmware updates. Wes, kind of I officially am handing you this Linux Unplugged branded thumb drive, which contains the latest official released Ooh. Antigross image sure from last month. With the J- yeah. JB signing oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I checked it for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So there you go, Wes. Good luck to you. And, oh, thank uh, you, sir. Uh, there is a – it is already partitioned into two separate – well, there's a, the – the OS X partition, uh, because I've, I've played with Linux on there before, is like already shrunk down. And so there is like a, there's like right now, I just put made it like fat or something for you that you can mess around with. So there you go, oh, Wes. You. The challenge is officially launched. It's for people who like to mess with computers. Hey, before we go any further, let's bring in our virtual lug to dig through the community updates. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Greetings, Greetings. How's it going? Very good. Hello. I am excited to share this Firefox news story with you guys. So we put it right up here at the top of the uh, community updates. Firefox 49 for Linux is going to be gaining plug-in-free support for Netflix and Amazon streaming. This is super nice. No more uh, crazy workarounds. No more depending on Chrome. I know a lot of Firefox users who have Chrome installed just so they can watch Netflix. So this is cool. And it's really another plug-in biting the dust. 
They're using that uh, Widenvine. How do you say that? Widevine. Widevine. Widevine uh, uh, technology, which is created by Google, I believe, right? But Google has released it freely. Yeah. And uh, now Firefox will be integrating that, and they specifically plan to publish support for Linux users in September with Fire- in Firefox 49. That is great. That's a, that's a big equalizer. This and electrolysis is yeah. making Firefox look super attractive. Again. Those days where you're just frustrated with Chrome for whatever reason, and you're like, oh, maybe I'll use something else. Mm-hmm. Firefox is getting there. For me, the uh, story around how um, plugins how, and extensions have to be refactored to support electrolysis might still be the final decision. Uh, but uh, I know both... Uh, uh, have you? I know you've looked at Vivaldi before. I was going to say both you and I have messed around with Vivaldi. Yeah, I, but I used it uh, probably for a week or two. Yeah, I've recently looked into it. Uh, Mr. Tunnell there in the uh, Mumba Room has been playing around with it. Uh, uh, Michael, has it been specifically, uh, like, has it gotten to the point where it's specifically ready to switch from Chrome and it solves some of your Chrome frustrations? Or is it, where is Vivaldi at in your testing so far? Well, I mean, actually, I don't, I don't like Chrome at all um, because it does a lot of things I don't like. Uh, and I prefer Firefox over everything. However, uh, everything that I didn't like about Chrome has been solved in some way in Vivaldi. So the things that I, if I went from Firefox to Chrome, I would lose a lot of features. But all, well, 99% of the features that I would lose are available in Vivaldi. So the transition wouldn't be as bad for me to go from Vivaldi, uh, go to Vivaldi. Uh, but whereas Chrome would basically just not even remotely be an option for me. Okay. So it's the tab hibernation specifically is one of the most important mm-hmm. things I've seen because I, I set up a, a tab stack where you can put a bunch of tabs into one tab and then you can hibernate that whole stack. Oh, that is nice. So Slick. you can take like 30 tabs and then hibernate them all so you only have like two active and you can jump to them wherever you want to. Oh, all right. That's really nice. Uh, I have heard of, I've read about their, I just never really thought about using it in that way. That is a pretty compelling use case. For me, Vivaldi is going to switch to feasible when they have a sync solution. It's sync, <coughs> mm-hmm. tab sync and bookmark sync is pretty critical. Like if I'm upstairs and I'm working on a Google Doc yeah. for a show today, I have a current shows folder in my bookmark toolbar that all of my docs for the shows that week that I'm working on, as I, as I create that doc, I drag it down into this folder and that becomes available on my machines here in the studio and my machines in my office. Pretty important to me to have that feature, and Firefox has pretty good sync now. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons I keep eyeing Firefox. Um, Michael, while you're uh, kind of up and uh, center right now, have you followed at all this uh, theme pack that makes GIMP look more like Photoshop? It's something that's been around for a while, but just recently got updated, and uh, it really makes GIMP look and lot work and look a lot like Photoshop. And I don't know how I feel about yeah. it, but I'm wondering if you've tried it. Uh, I, I tried it a long time ago. Uh, I haven't tried the latest version, but it, it works in the sense that it brings the uh, the UI to a more usable state and mm. not the absurd. Every tool is cu- is like hidden at the bottom of the columns. Yeah, um, I like overall, but it's not really necessary because a lot of the things that it does is uh, not that much different. Like it does a, a, a dual column uh, tool set instead of a single column yeah, tool set. Yeah. Like that's cool, but not really don't care. <laughs> yeah. But the the only thing that GIMP has a problem with, in my opinion, is the fact of where they put the the tools option section. And this uh, theme pack changes or whatever pack it's called uh, changes it and moves it to the top right, mm. so it gives it a lot more prominence. So that one feature, that one change, is probably enough for me to use it. 
Yeah, so it uses some of the same icons, but really a big for probably a lot of switchers is it uses some of the same keyboard shortcuts, uh, which is kind of oh, yeah, nice. That's the most important part, part of me for me because I have a uh, I've used Photoshop for so long that when I go to G- GIMP, I have to remember I have to re relearn yeah. every single time yeah. all the shortcuts. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on dragging old design paradigms and ways of using things from our proprietary days into open source projects. Is this encumbering GIMP in a way that uh, uh, sort of prevents it from sort of branching out into a different UI design, even if it's bad by some people's comparison? Is there maybe a downside to doing something like this to open source? It seems like it doesn't feel like something that happens to proprietary commercial applications. I don't think it's bad just because... A lot of my friends who have moved from Photoshop to GIMP oftentimes complain about things not being where they're accustomed to, and that makes it a lot harder to continue (laughs) using it. And so I tell them about these different things like GIMP Shop, and and, uh, I saw this the other day and sent it over to my my dad, who used Photoshop for years and years and years before adopting GIMP. And, you know, he likes this type of stuff because it, it puts things in a place that he absolutely is, expects it to be. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, for, for my mom, who's been a graphic artist and literally lived inside the Adobe applications for the last 25 years, this would be just it's just it's just simply a matter of like Rotten was saying, uh, Mr. Tunnell, that it is a mapping that's to your it's like a muscle memory mapping. Mm-hmm. How's the challenge going there, Wes? I noticed you're insert, inserting the uh, boot drive for the or the thumb drive for the first time. Have you been doing uh Research ahead of time. I did a little bit of research. Uh-huh. Uh, I've got it booted. I'm just uh, there's some. Oh really? Let's, let's just say the word Broadcom is yes, a factor. Yes, so that, that is an issue. Now um, I wonder if we don't have an easy way to get you Ethernet either. That's okay. I'm uh, working on a. It's, it wasn't in Apple's best wisdom to include an Ethernet adapter in their Pro laptop. You see, that's that's silly. <laughs> Those are so floppy drive. I think I might even have a USB adapter in my bag, but uh, hopefully I won't need it. I, I wondered. I wonder if anybody in the Mumba room uh, is uh, moving on from GIMP. I think we've probably said our piece. I wonder if anybody in the Mumba room is uh, an Internet of Things advocate or skeptic, because this next story is, I think, extremely good news for an actual manageable Internet of Things world. This is a big deal for Canonical. They just struck a deal that is going to put Ubuntu on Adventex x86-based gateways. And they're going to be certified to fully support Ubuntu images. Now, these these Internet of Things gateways, I think, are a pretty sound way to go. Because you have your various janky, cheap endpoints that are distributed throughout your house that you're probably going to be replacing every couple of years. And you have all of that connect back to a central gateway device that proxies... Oh, God, it's weird to hear a Mac I, sound on this terrible. show. <laughs> that is weird. Uh, it, so, <laughs> oh, so I apologize, I, everyone. I got a little shook up there. Uh, so it, it acts as sort of a central proxy to handle, like, you could manage a lot of these things centrally from there on your land before it even has to go out to the Internet. So for something for that particular device to be the sort of central communication point, to be running something like an Ubuntu image that is supportable and updatable, and uh, likely more secure than some sort of off-created embedded OS by some hardware manufacturer. I think this is a huge, uh, a huge win for uh, for that. Oh, look at that! I didn't even know I had that shot. Well, that's pretty fancy. So, does anybody in the mumble room uh, have any thoughts on uh, this on the Internet of Things in general and and ways we could prevent a Armageddon where uh, <laughs> all mayhem was, has been unleashed unleashed on us because these uh, devices are out of date and unpatched? 
I like the idea uh, in general as long as I get to control what it runs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, what it runs um, and how up-to-date it remains and how easy that process is are all pretty key for me, I think. I know I somebody – yeah, go ahead. pretty much. Yeah, yeah, very nice. Very nice. We all, sorry, we all know that like a lot of this stuff right now, we set it and it never gets updated. And <laughs> so, I mean, that world in which some of these things actually run a legit like operating system that's used in other uh, products – and actually gets updates like that's a that's a win yeah regardless uh i'm delighted to see uh mr popey here i'd be kind of curious to hear your thoughts popey about uh, this particular git uh it seems like a pretty good position just your personal thoughts on this market for ubuntu as somebody who's watched the platform for a long time and maybe the internet and things in general so hi popey welcome back to the show and your thoughts sir yeah it's funny you know the old um there's no such thing as the cloud, just other people's computers. Yeah. I saw someone do a, a, a tweet earlier, I think yesterday, that said, there's there's no internet of things. There are just many unpatched, vulnerable, small computers on the internet. Nice. Yep. And that is so true. And having uh, a platform that is updated, you know, I worry that my home gateways, but not just home stuff, corporate environment, there are devices on corporate networks of all kinds, which are yeah. not updated, not patched, not centrally managed. And I think it's great that we're making inroads in companies that are making these devices that allow them to be centrally managed and updated and secure and have apps uh, via a store um, installed on them. I think it's great. You know, but uh, Google would tell us that we need something like Fuchsia, Fuchsia to make this possible. Uh, that uh, yeah, can you tell me where I can download that? Yeah, <laughs> apparently uh, in the future, <laughs> that's where you can download okay. that. I'll, I'll be waiting. <laughs> uh, Wimpy, are you a bit of a skeptic on these particular device categories in general? And the only reason I don't mean to label you as a skeptic, but you and I have shared similar thoughts on the past in regards to VR, which also seems to have the same kind of hype smell to it. I don't think Wimpy's there. Yeah. Oh, there you are. Hello, sir. <laughs> Hi, Wimpy. Uh, oh. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Yep. Hello? I think you just have a delay. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, dear. That's unfortunate. Um, is this the um, alloy device you're referring to or something else? It is. I think it's actually a not-yet-released device by Adventech, which is – so it's basically a full-fledged x86 computer, uh, and it's it I don't think is a shipping product yet. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, Adventech Embedded Computing Group. Now, Popey, um, if you know anything, yeah, you want to correct me, but I believe that's the case. I I don't have an issue with these devices so long as, so long as they can actually run Linux of any flavor because then you're able to put a Linux operating system on it after whatever platform they've tried to build out of open source tools and things have sort of passed away. Um it's when you get these things that where their thing that runs Linux is like a heavily patched version and they've never open sourced the patches back. So you can't, you know, reutilize the device fully without having to reverse engineer a load of stuff. Mm. Or if they have like uh, an image that they build once in a while, like they use rootstock or rootstock NG or something, which builds a, a root file system that they deploy on the device. And then that's it ships out with that and no one gets any updates unless there's some kind of you know deep leet technical user who will go and download 
the latest image and flash it on the device. If it's got no internal way of updating itself, I don't want it on my network. I would much rather have devices that, you know, can check in with a central server, get an update, uh, make sure I've got the latest version of apps, latest version of the core operating system, whatever that might be. And yeah, I agree with Martin. If, if, if it ships with some form of Linux, then at some point I could potentially put some other yeah. form of Linux on yep. it that's, that's more secure. What an excellent point that is. I think that's exactly it. Uh, and maybe the meta story there is by enabling Ubuntu on this thing, it's opening it up for people like us to tinker if we wish, but also giving regular consumers that just use it with a stock Ubuntu image a pretty fair shot at what seems so far to be a security disaster. So either way, it seems like a positive story for even non-Ubuntu users. So I'm I'm pretty excited about it. I like that stuff. And it always felt like it was like, okay, we're going to get Linux on these devices, but it's not going to be a Linux we trust or a Linux, or a we, Linux understand, we know. Or can yeah. you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if, if this is real Ubuntu, that'd be great. Yeah, I know that. And uh, I know how to Google for things yeah, about Ubuntu, right? and I know how to read Stack Exchange, and I can do things with this. And, you know, it kind of goes back to my hesitations with FreeNAS. I like yeah, the, I like the product, and here in my business, I use it, but in my home, I kind of want something I feel safe if I ever got the wild hair. To tinker with, mm-hmm. I want I want to be able to, and, and I feel like with FreeNAS, it, I home, break it. Right? Yeah, with FreeNAS, I feel like I break it when I tinker it. But if yeah. it's something that's Ubuntu based, I I grok that user space. I know what I'm doing there. Okay, so before we continue on, oh, you busted out a USB Ethernet adapter. I oh. did happen to have it in my bag. Holy yes. crap! Respect. Uh, so are you? So okay, I'm guessing connectivity is a, a major issue, especially for something like Antergross which requires connectivity to install. And I've noticed you've brought the thumbstick back to your Sputnik laptop. What's going on? Well, for some reason, it's not booting now, so I'm checking the integrity <laughs> really quick. I'm also copying the Broadcam driver onto a second USB oh, stick. Oh, clever, sir. So I will then hopefully be able to reboot, install that driver, <clears throat> and get it installed. Okay, so um, Ethernet could be tricky. However, That's what I assumed. If we wanted to take out the wireless here at the JB1 Studios, you could go around the corner and there is an exceptionally long Ethernet cord okay. that, that powers our wireless that you could bring it into here. And I don't think it would take out any of our production systems because they're all Ethernet. That's good to know. Hopefully we will all... Yeah. But that, yeah, that's a... That, by the way... Option two. I think is like if you're going to dive into the realm of uh, Linux on the MacBook, if, if you want to do that, go get yourself a USB Ethernet adapter because you're, that's going to come in super handy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, all right, so we have more updates to get into, uh, and I want to do that. And Mr. Sipes is here, and we definitely want to talk to him. So before we continue, let's mention our first sponsor, and that's Ting, my mobile service provider. Check them out. Go over there right now to linux.ting.com, and you'll save on your first device. Or if you bring a compatible device, they'll give you $25 in credit for your first month. Now, that's probably going to pay for your first month because the way Ting works is you only pay for what you use, and there's just a $6 fee for the line plus plus Uncle Sam's cut, like a mobster, and then your usage, just your minutes, your messages, your megabytes. In fact, they just recently lowered their data prices, which is phenomenal, makes them incredibly Crazy. competitive. And they have a system where if, if you just want to use your device like a couple of times a month for a few calls, you could save a ton of money. But if you have a busy month where you're making – Tons and tons of calls. Like for me, I'm, I was <laughs> in April. I'm on the phone every day, sometimes two hours a day. Totally. And I have like one month on Ting that's like maybe, I don't even know, $55, $65, $75, depending on if I'm also using quite a bit of data or something. And then the other months, it's $24, $25, $26, $30, $35, $40, depending on my usage. 
it, it, it averages out to be an incredible savings over two years, over $2,000. And you can get a feel for it too by using their savings calculator on their page. It's really nice. Unlocked devices, no contracts, nor the termination fees. You can get simple feature phones that just make great calls and have week-long battery life. Or you can go get the Cadillac Android devices and everything in between. You should check out some of their devices. They all come unlocked. You own that device. They're not going to get in the way of updates. They don't play that carrier game. Nope. I love it. And they're backed by Two Cows, who's been around since the dot-com boom. Think about that. Imagine that. Making money on the internet since before the dot-com boom and actually doing it in a way that's great. Because you, you get great customer service with Ting. Check them out at linux.ting.com. It's a better way to do mobile. I love it. Thanks, Ting, for sponsoring the Unplugged program. So uh, uh, Mr. Ryan Sipes is joining us, and you've uh, heard him jumping in a few times. And you may have also heard the news this week that uh, he has departed from Mycroft, the project that Big we news. have talked about a lot on this show. And I'm sure it must have piqued the interest of uh, a lot of our audience. So, Ryan, first of all, I just wanted to say uh, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I... Uh have a bit more free time on my hands. That's okay. <laughs> Good. I bet. <laughs> we appreciate you spending some of that podcasting yes, with us then. Uh, so I, I imagine uh, you've probably gotten a lot of questions and, uh, people, and seen a lot of different discussions happening online. Is there anything in particular you wanted to address or any particular feedback items you wanted to touch on? Uh, mostly, I just wanted to assure everyone that Mycroft is licensed under the GPL version 3 and that uh, as a result, like, Regardless of my involvement, um, the project can continue, and uh, people are should feel just fine using it and get and implementing it into their projects. And uh, that's all I'm willing to say right now about about it. Really specifically, the I I think that if people are keeping up with me um, online, uh, you have my blog post pulled up there um, to just. To just stay tuned, and and uh, I will, I will kind of bring people into um, more of the mindset behind that. But I was really just ready to move on to other projects, and uh, and this was the best time to do it. So Ryan, um, I, th- I kind of wanted to talk about you in a different context for a second. Uh, how, do you remember how long ago it was that the Mycroft? Uh, 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 can- funding campaign launched. I mean, that was probably the first time I'd really heard your name. So, how long ago was that? Do you think? Oh, uh, it was well. I th- it was September of last year. So it's, um, okay, so it's not even been a year yet. Um, correct. Here's what's pretty damn astonishing about that. I a year ago, I wasn't thinking a lot about open source artificial intelligence personal assistant devices. Uh, it wasn't really, it was, it was obviously something the big, uh, the big guys were thinking about. It wasn't really something on my radar, which I think was a mistake. And then also, uh, I had never heard the name Ryan Sipes before, and I didn't, I, I didn't know you from Adam. Uh, and now here we are less than a year away, or less than a year later, I'm sorry, and artificial intelligence and voice recognition and intent parsing are something that we talk about all the time. And Ryan Sipes is a name that many people are all of a sudden familiar with. And what I find to be extremely illuminating about this particular situation is, at least in in my view, it seems to demonstrate how quickly the open source community recognizes good work and talent and how that really can, can propel you into – the general discussion very quickly just simply based on technical merits and a project that people are interested in. And that, that is really 
one of the most, I think, interesting sort of side meta stories about you and Mycroft is how quickly you've become sort of a common technology that we are discussing simply because it sounds fascinating on its technical merits and what kind of that says about our community. And I'm kind of wondering, Ryan, if you reflect on sort of some of – if you could reflect for a moment on what that process has been like going from nobody knew your name really. I mean maybe I'm wrong on that, but I certainly really didn't to uh, – you know, now you're making videos on YouTube about Mycroft. You're going to System 76 and you're getting interviewed on podcasts. Uh, you're having to make blog posts when you uh, quit a job and tweet about it. And then all the follow up that comes from that. What ha- what the hell has that been like for you? So I have been into open source software for a long time. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, I was always watching and seeing people uh, who... I thought were much more technically talented than I was in shaping the conversations around uh, the future of open source and, and sure. kind of what projects were rising to the top. I think that the, uh, the thing that happens is that uh, after a while of being in this community, you start to want to share your ideas mm-hmm. and you start to want to, to contribute back, you know, to, I didn't, I had never used a server. Like I'd never set up a server until somebody finally was like, Hey, check out Ubuntu, you know, in 2005 or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and when I started using the desktop Ubuntu, well then it, that opened my mind up to Linux. And at the time I remember I wanted to host a website and I, people were saying like, oh, you have to use, you know, this version of Windows Server. And uh, and I just was able to get acquainted with all this technology because of open source. And so since then, you know, you want to pay it forward. And, uh, and I got the opportunity to do so by introducing lots of people to a new technology that is going to shape the future of computing in, in a lot of big ways. Yeah. Now... Before then, you know, uh, I actually was in the mumble room a couple times before Mycroft ever came around. I talked about Kansas Linux Fest. Oh, okay, and, yeah, uh, sure, okay. And, and uh, I think when so, I spoke for myself, though, I'm really kind of meaning in the broader, like Ryan Sipes as a name is probably not something. I don't think there's probably as many people that were talking about you before something very technically interesting came along that you were involved with. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and but now I because of this because of my experience at Mycroft, I, I am very happy to be able to, to use kind of the microphone that's given me to share other projects that I think that the open source community should be gathering around and should be aware of. One of these things is, um, machine learning. Mm, uh, absolutely. That's a enormous opportunity. It's an enormous, uh, <laughs> it's an enormous pro, uh, just space that's yeah. just going to blow up. And we should be able to. We'll need take something there, and that. the proprietary people are there now, and will continue to be there. So we mm. need to be there too. Yeah. yeah. Fortunately, there's there's pr- projects like TensorFlow from Google, and some of the and Cafe from Yahoo, and uh, a few others you mean and, that are open source. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I. I'm really excited uh, to to kind of 
go go forward from here and continue to help shape uh, maybe like open source AI and uh, and personal assistance. Um, it's after a lot of self reflection, I just found that that I might have a better opportunity to do that yeah. um, on my own uh, at this point. Uh, there there are other projects that uh, I hint at getting involved in in my blog post and uh i would love to come back and talk about them and, and share some things i think that uh, uh one of them the community will be familiar with um and it's just a project that hasn't gotten a lot of play that i think is really important mm. and then uh and then there are some other ones that i'd, that I'd like to talk about and uh, see if we can't get some some uh, collaboration you know um but yeah it's it's been a crazy wild ride. I met a lot of people who I considered to be celebrities, including you, Chris. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it was kind of crazy when I posted the blog post to get calls from people who I who I uh, I, uh, a year ago, if you'd said that they were going to give me a call, you mm-hmm. know, like, mm-hmm. out of the blue, mm-hmm. uh, I would have told you that's just not possible. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, it's been a wild ride, and, and it's not over. Uh, I I think that there's so much more that that I can do for the open source community. I think that there's so much more that we as a larger community, the Jupyter Broadcasting community, the Linux community, can uh, can do. And and mm-hmm. I'm excited to be yeah, a part of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you are always welcome to come and contribute to the shows because I always love hearing your take on stuff. And uh, I know you reflect on this stuff quite a bit. And uh, I've always sort of uh, enjoyed following what you do, and I'll continue to do so. Mm-hmm. So thanks for joining us, Ryan. And uh, Yeah, thanks for having me on. Maybe some of you guys can help explain this next story to me. Wes, I'm looking at you. I know you're in the middle of a challenge right now, but uh, this sounds like a bad thing, and I want you to talk me off the ledge, okay? Uh, fake Linus Torvald keys have been found in the wild, and we need to knock it off with the short IDs ASAP. Uh, apparently it's well known that PGP is vulnerable to short ID collisions, and many experiments have been done to demonstrate that. But what I didn't know is that uh, keys, fake keys, fake PGP, or maybe GPG keys, I guess, mm-hmm. have been found for Linus, for Greg KH, and other kernel developers in the wild recently. Holy shit, this seems bad to me. This seems like NSA Russia kind of hacking China bad. It's, well, it's, it's really more just Talk you really down, shouldn't Wes. be using these short keys Um uh, a, a project called Evil Thirty Two uh, to try to demonstrate this. They took the Web of Trust, uh, the the usual one that you'll use uh, if you are using GPG PGP PGP keys. Right. Yeah. Say that uh, and five then, times. And then fast. they and then they computed all of these you brute force. You know, using yeah, GPUs. Right. Mm-hmm. And it looks like some people have been taking their publicly available files and uploading them to some of the key servers. Okay. And so then people looking for them have found these. So it's. It's uh, it does sound bad. It is bad, but we also know that you just we these are not equivalent. We don't they not, do not provide the kind of identification, the kind of security that we expect from them. PGP GPG keys don't do with the short IDs. Anybody else in the moment room have any uh, takes on the story? Because this is kind of one of those thick ones that it seems like something we know, but probably the pr- the issue would be there's stuff out there already that is signed with these short keys, yeah. short IDs, I guess. Uh, and I don't know if anybody else has insights in the moment room, but. Uh, that's our take on it. I yeah. Guess. Go ahead. Um, so, I don't think this actually um, is bad for the normal users yeah. of Linux, but sp- but more on people that um, that maintain distros, and if they don't check, oh, well, then good it's bad. point. That is 
That is exactly who needs to be paying attention to this story. Well said, Mr. Z. Well said. Uh, thank you. That is a really good point. Uh, I wanted to mention uh, something that I think was well said, and it uh, started a, a conversation that I think probably wasn't necessary, but I wanted to give a shout out to uh, Ninja Aaron, who 23 hours ago created a, a Linux Action Show subreddit post saying a quick comment about the ButterFS coverage on the latest Linux Action Show. And um, <clears throat> that's where we discussed the fact that the official ButterFS project Twitter account recommended people use uh, ZFS or mm-hmm. ZFS. That's pretty wild. That was wild. And that, that our, our story was really about the reaction to that. But, you know, he makes a great point. Uh, he says that uh, ButterFS is definitely having its issues, but he makes a couple of good use cases for ButterFS in this post. And I, I guess I did want to mention, like, I'm not, I'm not necessarily uh, opposed to the idea of people that want to use ButterFS on their laptop that has an SSD drive. Uh, I, I don't really think ButterFS is like the devil file system. I, I what yeah, really, totally. really where I have an issue with the ButterFS advocacy, it it really comes down to when people try to advocate that it should be used in a business slash enterprise setting. However, you want to describe that. Um, I started in IT in the in the year two thousand. Mm-hmm. About 99. Well, actually, really, actually, that's not true. 97 was when I actually officially got paid uh, in uh, in IT when I was uh, I was at that time desktop tech support. But uh, one of the things that I had two there was interesting. I had two challenges over my career that were uh, very much about data retention. And then I had and then I had many challenges beyond that. But there were some that were very particular legally and, you know, mandated uh, very, 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 very carefully audited use cases uh, that I can't even really go into. And in these scenarios, you know, back then we used we used very very cutting edge file systems that were very risky, uh, m- mostly because that was all that was available at the time. You had back to, then. yeah. And so it's not that I'm also like uh, some holier than thou uh, soapboxer who says, "Oh, you should never use ButterFS because you're a lunatic." I mean, I've been the guy that's been putting a file system that's a little edgy in production. Yeah, I have on a lot of my systems, but I, there is sort of, I guess, there is sort of this. Um, it feels to me like there is this failure to look within a bit to sort of self-analyze and say we've made a mistake here. Uh, and so I wanted to acknowledge that while I have been sort of anti-ButterFS in the last few weeks as there's been more flaws, I also think there's many useful use cases for it. And I wanted to give a shout out to Mr. Ninja Aaron for uh, kind of, you know, very well stating that case and making me reflect on it a bit and go, you know, I, I, I myself, if I for that – actually for this, you know, for this MacBook here, I would – Absolutely consider ButterFS on there. Oh, you should have said that like uh, no, two fine. minutes what did ago. You, what did you go get in EXT4 just because I figured you wouldn't mind if it was uh, I don't mind. safe and solid No, choice. so you're actually that far, huh? It's installing so right now. So then in order for you to be that far, that means you got wireless working. Oh, yeah. Ah, now that wireless fix, that's, this is one of the interesting things, though, is that wireless fix will not persist once you reboot into the main OS after it's been installed. No, but uh, maybe I'll be smart enough to root into and uh, install that preemptively. <laughs> Thank you for the that. reminder. <laughs> Damn it. You know, Wes, I'm actually pretty impressed that you got the Wi-Fi working uh, without any other f- connectivity. So what did you do? What did you do? Because this is going to be the number one challenge is these, these MacBooks, any recent MacBook doesn't have an Ethernet port. And everybody that's going to be doing this is going to run into this problem where they're not going to have Wi-Fi when they get in a live environment. So what did you do to enable networking without having a connection? Well, I had conveniently, we're installing Antigros here, and I had a Arch Linux little laptop right here. So I just uh, 
ran make package, built the package, copied it on a USB drive, <laughs> installed it, mod probed, mod probed the uh, Broadcam drivers, and away we went. Well played, sir. Which I was very pleased. Everything worked perfectly. Uh, well played. Network manager picked it right up. We were on the network. Damn. And also, I'm impressed that you remembered the Wi-Fi password, too. Because I didn't tell you what that was, and you still good job. Uh, anybody have thoughts on ButterFS in the mumble room before we uh, move on to just a, a quick shout out? I have. I'll just say I'm excited for uh, Bcache FS. We'll see when that's actually usable. But is that a B tree kind of yeah, like RAM I'd based? Second that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Tease me a little bit. Let's see. There's actually a Patreon for it. Are you Maybe serious, Wimpy? It. Why are you looking forward to it? Let's throw it right there. Oh my God! Maybe okay, I'll explain it better than I could. Probably. Well, well B Cash is something that uh, B Cash is something that I've used to uh, accelerate uh, spinning drives by putting uh, a B Cash partition on solid state to effectively create sort of a uh, a level two cache. This and the is authors great. behind B Cash realized that they were very close to actually having a full <laughs> yeah, exactly. block file system. So they're going the next step to implement it as a copy-on-write file system. They only have 38 patrons. I feel like maybe we could bump that up a little bit for mm-hmm. them. So here's so it's going to be a copy-on-write file system like ZFS or ButterFS. They, they aim for good performance. They say significantly better than existing copy-on-write file systems comparable to the performance of Extended 4 or XFS See, we, re- we really need this. Just oh, wow. Ourselves. Metadata and data checksumming multiple devices, including replication and other types of RAID, caching, compression, encryption, snapshots, and scalable. It's been tested up to 50 terabytes and will eventually scale higher. Already working on stable with, many community, uh, with a small community of users. This is super exciting. And what I really like about it is, and this is where I was trying to get to in the conversation on Sunday, but I, I, I think I went off track, is... ButterFS, when you look at the model, almost seems like this this funding model makes a lot of sense. It's just they would need way more support mm-hmm. because it really is a full-time job. It is a lot of work to do this properly. And this is this is great. So Bcash, I'll put a link to the uh, Patreon in the, uh, in the show notes. So that could be really cool. I'll check it out more after the show. Uh, has anybody tried it out? Just watching I, it? I have not, no. Hmm. <laughs> Wimpy, what would be your use no, case? I've not for? tried it, but uh, one day. One day, yeah. Um, as a principal file system on uh, laptops, for example. Yes. Oh, could you imagine something like that? The features of that, if if we had, okay. So here's why it's a big deal. Here's why we need to get this right. So one of the things that True OS um, is that out that they're changing the name to True OS is that a is that an official thing? I hope I didn't. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> is that a thing? This is BSD unplugged. So uh, PCBSD has the uh, Lumos desktop environment, mm-hmm. and they, they've done a lot of work on their file manager to integrate ZFS snapshots and backups and multiple versions into the file manager. And that is honestly the level that we need to get at with the Linux desktop. And until we really kind of land on something, until we really sort of solidify something like this, we're not going to have it integrated at the desktop level like that. It's, there's no way until it has mass adoption that's going to happen. And definitely one of the advantages that the PCBSD guys has is if you're going to go with it, if you, they have one file system choice that supports all this <laughs> right. stuff, and that's and so ZFS. Using it and they can plan for that. And they can, exactly. 
Yep. And, and it's the same advantage that once Apple gets off their ass and they finally get APFS working, they'll do that and they'll integrate into Time Machine. Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest with you, in some ways, NTFS has been kicking our ass for a couple of years with Shadow Copy. I mean, Shadow Volume Copy has really saved my ass a couple of times when I was in IT. And I, I, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to use ButterFS here on our server uh, that runs our VMs because it, I mean, it, it, it saved my ass a few times. So there, there is one story I wanted to talk about before we uh, go any further into the show because last week I, I kind of offhandedly mentioned the Humble Bundle and was sort of like dismissive with their only three games that supported <laughs> Linux. And then this week uh, Humble Bundle 17 went live and uh, all of the games, all of the games in this bundle support Linux. So I just I wanted to follow up on that because I gave them kind of a hard time last week and then they totally delivered this week with Humble Indie Bundle 17. This is the Humble Indie Bundle. And uh, all the games freaking support that Linux. That is awesome. Yeah, if you pay more than $10, you get Nuclear Throne, which is, I think, the Ooh. only... Yeah, I think that's one of the games I wanted. So uh, we have a link. Uh, Octodad, nice. Always a classic. Mm-hmm. I like that OMG Ubuntu has been writing about this, too. Yeah, that's nice. I think it is. I like that they're posting more over there. They, they kind of slow down for a while, mm-hmm. and it seems like they've picked it back up. And I think that's nice, because it feels like there's a lot going on these days. It feels like things, in some ways, it's August and the news is slow, but at the same time, there is a lot of really, we're on the precipice of the interesting things really hitting us, and so yeah. that stuff is beginning to arrive. And if you're watching closely, like like that terminal we talked about, mm-hmm. that there are things beginning to land. It's like an incubation period right yeah. now, and there's stuff happening, it's kind of just mm-hmm. not visible, and soon it'll be And it feels right like they're doing a decent job of percolating some of that stuff up. And some of the stuff, like the uh, GIMP uh, theme or arc theme stuff like that. It's also just kind of nice as a daily driver. It's nice to have that kind of stuff. So uh, hats off to Joey over there for seemingly uh, picking it up recently and, and really doubling down on content that I've been enjoying reading. Even as a non-Ubuntu user, I still find it kind of interesting, which has got to be kind of a challenge for a site called mm-hmm. OMG Ubuntu. <laughs> right? <laughs> hey, before we go any further, I'll tell you about a challenge I have, and that is every time I need to do something, it feels like i got to get a new computer. Well, that's where DigitalOcean came in. I am able to spin up a server in, in less than a minute now, and that is a game changer for me. When I want to try something out, I spin up a droplet. When I want to put something in production, I use a droplet. And when I want something just for family members, I use a droplet. DigitalOcean is simple cloud hosting dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own server on their kick-ass infrastructure. They have SSDs throughout the entire thing. they got data centers all over the world. They have multiple data centers in multiple cities. They have private networking amongst your servers in certain, in certain areas, which is a really cool feature. And I'm just going to put this out there. I have not actually done this yet, but I'm going to admit Alan has been teasing me. Uh, you could do a little free NAS thing on that back end oh, now that they've got block storage. you right. got ZFS. You could also do Ubuntu 16.04 with a little ZFS action and then do the back end block storage. Or you know what? If you want to go crazy, you could probably – there's probably – I mean it's block storage. You could use ButterFS too. Yes, you could. You really could. It's kind of fun because it's uh, – it's SSD backed and you just attach it as you need it. It's on demand. Their pricing starts at $5 a month. And if you use our promo code, and this is kind of nice, if you use our promo code DO Unplugged, you get a $10 credit. And then you can try it out two months for free. They have a really nice interface. They have a super sweet API that tons of open source codes already been written around. And I, I got to tell you, now I've been using it, I don't know, a year and a half. I'm not sure how long I've been using DigitalOcean, but almost every week, I've spin up a droplet at least for a little right. bit, try something out, and then destroy it. And on occasion, I keep it in production. And I've been, I've been really sort of changing the way I think about computing. Like when we wanted to start streaming on demand to a certain, certain outlets yep. that prefer you only stream when you are actually live, 
it made sense to just take an existing configuration, sort of improve upon it, and spin up a new droplet on demand using their API, and exactly. then we just pay for it while we're using it. It really is like it's like infrastructure on demand, and it's it feels like 2016. You combine that now with their great tutorials and the huge community around it, and the fact that not only do they run Linux on their entire infrastructure, but they back a lot of the projects that we talk about yep. in some capacity or another. Um, and a lot of the folks that uh, we talk to interact with DigitalOcean in a way that uh, I, I don't know if DigitalOcean really promotes properly. Because like there's been projects that have come along and been, and been sort of desperate for hosting, and DigitalOcean has just provided it to them yeah, for free. Right, yep. And or worked out deals they, with them. They're very, it's not publicized very widely. And, and the other thing, like when they decided to bring on CoreOS as one of their distributions and, and FreeBSD, and, mm-hmm. I, and those are just the two since they've been sponsors that I have have like some information about, and so I'm not sure what they did in the past, probably similar, is they actually contact the upstream distribution and say, we want to work with you. We don't, they don't just like go grab the ISO yeah. image and make it work. They're like, we're going to work with you on this. Let's get this going. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. So use our promo code Unplugged and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Unplugged program. You know, Chris, if you didn't have a handy Arch Linux laptop, you could, uh, there are some scripts out there to convert your droplets to I Arch know. Linux. You could compile your, you could make, do your make packages up there. Yeah, that is something people could look into uh, because it's, I think it's mostly made possible because they're kick-ass console. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I want to talk about Debian. Today's its 23rd birthday, and maybe we could talk about the future of Debian a little bit. I wanted to reflect on something for a moment before we get any further. Uh, this is from Swampy over at his Mucketware uh, YouTube account. It's a video of Linus at DebConf 14, which was in Portland, which uh, I think I think JB live streamed this. I don't remember, so I probably could have played from my own clip archive, but uh, credit to Swampy for, th- for this clip here. I'll start with something non-controversial. No, no, I'm, I'm fine with controversial. That's, that's not usually my problem. Yeah. It's well known around these parts that in 2007 you did an interview where you said that although you've used many uh, Linux distributions, you had never used Debian because you found it difficult to install. Yes. Have you tried it since? Um, No. Um, That was quick. Uh, So uh, I'm sure it's gotten much easier to install. To me, a distribution is, I'm sorry, you may want to close your ears now. A distribution is not very interesting. I want it to be easy to install so that I can just get on with my life, right? Which is mostly the kernel. Uh, the closest I got to installing Debian was there was one machine. I forget which one it was. Um, it may have been the MacBook Air that actually had trouble installing something. And, uh, and Debian, the installer would boot, but then it didn't install there either. And eventually I figured out what was the problem with that machine, but, but by then it was too late. If there's a way to break installing an operating system, I've found it multiple times. And if there isn't one you already know of, I found it. Uh, and Debian, last time, super easy. Highly recommended trying. Maybe, maybe I should try. I mean, one of the problems I have is I am not an MIS person. I mean, I may do kernels, and people think that that means that I'm technical. 
But when it comes to actually maintaining machines, I am a complete disaster. Right? <laughs> it makes me feel better, right? It's, it's funny that he's like so caught up making and what well, maintaining the kernel. Yeah. That he's, you know, the actually running of the kernel. Yeah, not a big deal. The kernel, not a big deal. Not that interesting. No, okay, no. that's fine. Um, Debian is uh, one of my first Linux eyes. It wasn't my first Linux eye, but it was my mostly impressed it was, it was the one i was most impressed by and the one that uh, saved the day for us the most when we first started using linux oh yeah and i so i don't know if if it wasn't for debian i don't know if if i would be a linux user today really yeah well, maybe i mean it might have still happened but i think it was definitely a it major seems to have been a rock solid choice early on so that kind of people could latch onto it yeah yeah so uh, i boy i really i really am really thankful to debian because we had definitely tried um it was old red hat it was way, way before Fedora. It was way, way long time ago, like Red Hat 4 and 5, when we were trying some of this stuff. And when we were trying to do things like get the most current version of Squid, and it's funny to even talk about Debian in the context and getting a more current version, but yeah. literally our Red Hat distribution had shipped with a really ancient version of Squid, and Debian with apt-get made Squid set up. And then the other thing that was really nice about Debian is after – after you installed a package via the internet, which, by the way, back in yeah, the 90s right? that was, was magic. Wild. That was magic. That was what? That was unbelievable. And it also still supported CDs, which was great yes. because we needed those. Um, and so to be able to install Squid, but then the next thing after installing Squid where it would bring up like an NCURSES interface and ask me questions about what I wanted. And, right. and, and, and then to make it so easy to do that and set up email server, that and setting up an email server on Debian where n- nobody made it as easy and quick and then continued to keep it secure and up-to-date like Debian did. It was just you could rely on the fact that they were so slow and they took so long to upgrade that you were going to get a solid five years out of that machine and, and you, with solid updates and, mo- and probably longer. And then when you did after, gonna run. And then when you did have to disk upgrade after five years or six years, it was going to work. And that was, that was what – that made Linux so a, a safe bet for me. And it made it it made it possible for us to fix major networking problems that totally. we had. So I, I, I have a really soft spot for Debbie. And then obviously, it's sort of the uh, the proto distro that so many things have, uh, so many things have come from. And if you look at if you look at the success that Ubuntu has had in the on the cloud and all of that, and the fact that those origins come from Debian, it's it's really it's kind of incredible. Uh, so I wanted to open up the mumble room and say, hey guys, uh, what are your thoughts on may- maybe where Debian as a project itself? Is going to go in the future. Uh, where, where, where does this? Where does the next five, ten, maybe even twenty years? Where does Debian go? And um, I wanted to give the mumble room time to ping me in the chat room with their, you know, who wants to ever go. Uh, so Wes, while we while we give them time to let us know where they, th- and it could be quick or long. Uh, have you reflected on this at all since you know you and I were kind of chatting about this? Do you think Debian's going to continue to be a dominant player in this space? Is it going to continue to just be sort of the the foundation. What's the next few years look like for Debian in your mind? I'm kind of uncertain. Uh, I've played with Debian eight. I've used it to run like Free Switch, for example, where there's some good like uh, Ansible recipes and other things that are freely available. Um, and I, I mean, I find it a relatively pleasant environment. They've got System D now. It seems like you know it's pretty standard. They have a huge amount of software available. The Debian eight release is still very current. The software there is, you know, good for most needs. They've got their own PPA system in the works. In the works, yeah. I have not played with that or tried any of that, but, uh, you know, it's coming. Um, you know, what I haven't looked at is like a, is like SnapD, that kind of thing. Hmm. That that would be interesting as well. Uh, but it does seem like a good place to run software. But I don't know, what I, what I don't know and what I'm curious to hear from everyone else is 
what's the what's the enthusiasm like? Are are people looking for it? Is it like when you're just looking to run a Linux for some reason? Does Debian leap to your mind? Should it leap to your mind? Well, you know, I'm gonna. I see. So Ryan's tagged me. I'm, but first, I'm actually gonna. I'm gonna jump it over to Wimpy just for a second because I have an idea where I feel like Debian's gonna grow a lot in the next five years, and that's Raspbian and the Raspberry oh, Pi. Yeah. And I'm wondering what Wimpy thinks about that. Is you know because that's also a super popular trajectory for Ubuntu Mate. It, it seems like a likely a likely continued area of success for Debian. What are your thoughts, Wimpy? I I think that's a little bit awkward actually because raspbian isn't really part of the debian community Mm. um and i think raspbian would do well to more closely align itself with debian um rather than sort of be an offshoot with its own repository sort of bolted on top um so this is not a Debian issue, more a Raspbian issue. Yeah. But I would definitely like to see Raspbian become more closely aligned with Debian. So m- maybe in the future there isn't a Raspbian, there is just a Debian and everything you yeah. need yeah. to power everything on the Pi is in Debian proper rather than this sort of um, thing. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, if uh, you're absolutely right, and if I'm right that this is going to be a continued area of success for Debian, that is just going to get even more awkward. That is really something. That's a great point, Wimpy. Ryan, I want to give you a chance to jump in. Uh, what do you think? Do you think there's going to be another distro that will ever be su- surpassed as like the proto-distro in this next few? I mean, th- this seems to be a solid spot for Debian right now. Yeah, I think that you're right. I, If I pull out my crystal ball and I look at it, though, I think that we see uh, we see like let's look at ubuntu for instance sure i right now everything's based on debian i don't know how long that's gonna last i think for the foreseeable future that's a for sure thing mm-hmm. but the but i could see them since they've gained so much prominence in in the cloud and and across you know when you're deploying stuff there's so many people who just say yeah i deploy ubuntu you know, and they don't even think twice. They just use whatever configuration management tool that they're going to use on their cloud and just bang. It's like spun up 20 <laughs> machines yeah. all running a workload. And what's crazy is you see more and more of those running, you know, Docker images. And like it, it makes me wonder how long is it until, until the, uh, until the Ubuntu guys say like, Hey, uh, they want to go a different direction than we do. Why don't we finally begin to break our reliance on them? Will snaps you know, be we, the uh, press the uh, the thing that pushes it over the edge there? Perhaps interesting. I, I think it's possible. Yeah, uh, Sweet Lou, as a user, you say you don't really see a big difference between Debian and Ubuntu. So do you just sort of default go Ubuntu? Yeah, I've tried some Debian based, some other Debian based uh, OSs before. And to me, they just really didn't seem all that much different other than not, you know, having a, a, a usable place to install hmm. um, uh, stuff from, you know, besides um, uh, one that begins with the I would say I would say yeah from a user usability perspective that's absolutely the case Minimac you make the point that you kind of view Debian as a having a special role in the open source community 
Yeah, I see the Debian devs or the technical committee as somehow the moral authority. Hmm. You remember the ZFS discussion or adaptation of systemd? Yeah. I mean, the work of Debian developers has still some impact. Yeah, absolutely. Boy. Yeah. Yeah, you know, geez, Mini-Mac, good point. If we reflect on the system D discussion, it really seems like there was a massive change in the discussion. Jeez, that Mac thing. I know. There was a, there was a big pivot uh, when, Debian, when Debian decided to go system D. And then when Debian did some of the legal legwork to make uh, ZFS possible, you immediately saw uh, Ubuntu able to jump on that. And those are two huge, huge technology issues and social issues, quote-unquote, in the Linux community that Debian was sort of the deciding authority on. That's a great point. What, a, what an interesting position for them to be in. And, and uh, you know, it also makes me think a little bit, reflect a little bit on Ian Murdoch and uh, makes me miss him a little bit. So uh, there you go. That is, uh, boy, if, if you want to play with something kind of neat, and by the way, Momo, you still have a few, chance, a few minutes left to, or a minute left to jump in if you want, but if you want to look at something kind of neat and the history of the Debian project, we have timeline.debian.net linked in the show notes. And you can scroll through this and look at some of the major activity in the Debian project over the years, major milestones like Deb camps and huge bugs that were like news stories and first alphas and, and then, of course, the final beta rele- uh, final releases and the betas and all that kind of stuff. And also things like the, the bug squashing parties in Cambridge. And you kind of get a sense for uh, the Debian uh, project in a, at, a, at a larger scale. It's, it's pretty neat. And uh, it sees that, uh, that you can also get a sense that there's still plenty of 2016 left to be filled out on that map and plenty of the future for Debian. Goes way back. This is I don't know what tech they're using to generate this. Does it say down here? Uh, it's uh, really neat though. Yeah, it's this tiny font down there. I can't quite read it. It's at the bottom. You see how small that font is at the bottom Ooh, of the page? Dang. <laughs> but somewhere down there probably tells you what they're using. Uh so uh happy birthday to Debian guys. It's uh it's really cool. We're really happy to have uh something like you around for so long. So hats off and we give the uh, the special winners award to you. Yeah, that's for Debian right there, just for you guys. All right, so uh, I want to get to the, how the challenge is going and uh, the reasons why this challenge was actually concocted in the first damn place. And while you'll probably be hearing more about it pretty soon, if I were a little bit of uh, a crystal ball rubber. What? What? Did you? What? Did you say? Crystal, crystal ball rubber. Rubber. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplug. That's where you go to learn more about Linux Academy and support this show. Linux Academy is a platform to learn the core fundamentals around Linux, and then the stack around, all the, built on top of it, Azure, AWS, OpenStack, Docker, Python, that all that stuff in that ecosystem that you hear about all the time that feels like our big major nebulous topics that you're not really quite sure where you'd ever even get started. Linux Academy helps you put it in perspective and get it done. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged where you go to support this show. Try it out. They'll put you in the middle of a real-world scenario, so you walk away with experience. They have instructor mentoring when you need it. They have customized learning plans that can adapt to your availability, even when you're super-ass busy. And as somebody who owns his own business and is a father of three children, I can attest you can make Linux Academy work for you. Just get started at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Check out their great community. Look at their downloadable comprehensive study guides. There's real value there participate in their note, note card system, which is actually a pretty great experiment, you might call it, and enjoy their virtual labs, which spin up on demand when you need them and give you SSH access with distributions you've chosen 
ahead of time. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. And if you're going to get into the world of certs, this is a great resource. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Unplugged program. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Okay, Wes, I heard you rebooting during that spot. I heard you. How's it going over well, there? It's installed. Now we're working on getting it to show up in the bootloader. Do yeah. you have a preference? Do you want refined? Do you not? I, I don't know. I don't know what's, what's the difference. I, this is this is all new to I me. I mean, you can get it to, to work with the, the native EFI bootloader. That seems good. Okay, but you can also install refined, which is kind of just a nice, better What bootloader. would make it easier to get the NVIDIA graphics working? Because that's, that's, that's part of this. Question. That's part of that's this. That's a good question. Because I think that's like a kernel boot parameter. Because yeah. otherwise, I think it uses the Intel graphics by default. I believe so. And th- so I want to talk about why this is happening. Because this is some crazy bull crap. I mean... I, actually, I will be in full disclosure. I will be honest with you. Um, the number one question we have ever gotten into the Linux Action Show and Linux Unplugged, and I am literally talking since episode one over a decade ago of Linux Action Show. The number one question we have gotten is how do I get Linux working on a MacBook? And we answer it from time to time, but we never really fully mm-hmm. go into it. And so we're, it's one of these things that we're simply sick and tired of getting the question asked. <laughs> and so we just don't address it a lot. And I was, I was, um, I've been using the Entraware Apollo as my daily driver at home pretty much since my review and absolutely loving it. And it is light. Right. The battery that, that lasts for hours. It's, it's, it's small enough that I can carry it and just bring it to work when I need it and not have to worry about bringing the power adapter and it's, it is a very nice machine, and I have all my stickers all over it. With a, I just, I really enjoy it. But then No Man's Sky came out, and that damn game, huh. I can't help but love it. And it requires OpenGL four point five support oh. and SSE four, I think, and basically dedicated graphics. And that's where the MacBook came in. Yeah, right. And then I connected with okay. So I, I sort of visualize myself as an audience member. I've either bought a used MacBook, I've inherited a MacBook, or yeah. I'm sick and tired of Mac OS, and Apple is not getting around to updating this thing. No. And one of the things that I know from previous testing experience is that Linux runs a hell of a lot faster on the MacBook than OS X does. So the fact that this is a 2013 is going to feel – I, I estimate under Linux probably going to feel like a brand new machine. Like it's probably going to feel very fast. I mean it's got the PCI SSD in there. Ooh. It's got dedicated – Yeah, I thought about using uh, F2 FS or whatever. Yeah. It's got dedicated uh, NVIDIA graphics. It's, it's got a – it's got a wonderful Retina screen on it. It's it's a really a, it's a pretty nice laptop. Yeah, it is a nice laptop. And people generally accept that the MacBook is built well. So the question has always been, how reasonable would Linux be on the MacBook? Because my intention is, and I know this sounds ridiculous, is to then install Wine <laughs> and then install No Man's Sky. I, eventually, yeah. I plan to also put um, uh, OBS on there and do uh, some broadcasting from it because it does have a four-core processor as oh, well. Oh, sure. Yeah, that would work well. Yeah. So um, that's where that was sort of the impetus for myself to want to try Linux on the MacBook. And then that sort of sent us down the path of trying to figure out, well, what do you need to know before you put Linux on a MacBook? And it definitely seems to be one of the things you have to get your head around is what model of MacBook do you yes. have? And it, this is somewhat not obvious since Apple just calls everything MacBook. And if you have macOS on your system, you can actually ascertain this by going into the About Mac system. And I have a, screen, I have a screenshot of this, of this in the show notes. You go in there, and it'll tell you, like, it's a late model something-something. You Google MacBook Pro late model 2013, and it will tell you 
the specific like model number. It's like it's eleven comma two or something like that, right, Wes? Am I? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, and there's like other ones, like older ones are like you know different. So it's 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 a major model number comma minor model revision, and you find the you can find like Arch Wiki entries, which for mine I've linked in the show notes that specifically tell you about the little t- kind of esoteric tweaks you have to make to make it work on your particular MacBook model. And I, as I look at this, I think this could be a this could be a really great Linux box if if all of this works out. So I, I'm kind of really interested to see where it goes. I'll try the Thunderbolt out, and then I can report back to the audience on uh, on some of my adventures with it. I also was kind of wondering. I was kind of wanted to pick Wimpy's brain and ask him if he hears many people in the Ubuntu Mate community that are running it on right. the MacBooks, because that also crossed my mind as a possible distro if we couldn't get Arch working. Yeah, it does crop up from time to time, um, mostly in uh, discussions in the Ubuntu Mate community. And if it's something that you're interested in doing, then that is the place to first search because it's a discourse so you can find the right discussions easily. And if your model hasn't been discussed, then start a new thread. And there are a few people in there that uh, can assist you with that. It doesn't come up a lot. Um, it comes up a bit, but not not loads. It's certainly not a major platform I'm seeing people yeah. use Ubuntu Mate on. I, I good. I, I don't know. I just don't. At this point, I don't know if I feel like recommending it. Although maybe I'll feel differently after we try this. I do see it as like it could. So a couple of things have changed recently. First of all, um, um, based on some of my reading, the, the the roadblocks of getting the wireless working, the Broadcom wireless, have been significantly reduced. But the big change, which is in the more recent kernel, has been around for a little while now, but if you depends on your distro, there is built-in kernel-level support with the Synaptics driver for the MacBook touchpad or trackpad or whatever you want to call it. And that was something that used to be a sticking point on my particular model. Have you had to do anything to get the trackpad working, or has it been working? Uh, no, it's just been working. I mean, it, it's not quite as nice as the default one, but I've got scrolling. I've been impressed. The media keys have working, even in the live media. Uh, what uh, about the... the uh, is, I can see the high DPCI support GNOME working nicely. Really? Like you can see the tiny text on the console boot up, and then yeah. once you've uh, got to the login screen... Really? Yeah. Did GNOME just automatically go high DPI mode? Yeah. No way. Really? Yeah. At least in the integrous installer. Now, uh, um, um, what about the keyboard backlight? That's a great question. Is that working? Can you turn that on? Oh, yeah. And it even has the, like, scrollable no menu. Shut up. Uh Really? Yeah. Wow. That's actually pretty... Look at Gnome like kicking ass on that thing. Yes. So are you in the the live media right now or are you in the uh, installed uh, OS? Well, now I'm in the installed OS. Actually, I have to review how, how it actually got here. I was just kind of <laughs> troubleshooting that, but yeah. I rebooted again, and uh, I expected it to go into Mac OS X, huh. but it went right into yours. So, This is really going to be nice to be able to play No Man's Sky at home if you get this working with us. Yeah. I'm pretty excited. Um, I did a uh, after tech talk yesterday. I did a uh, let's play with I guess that's what I would, I guess that's what the kids call it. I did a uh, let's play with my son, Dylan, who is a huge Minecrafter, and there's definitely Minecraft elements in uh, No Man's Sky. And mm-hmm. so uh, it was a lot of fun. You know, he's seven years old, and so he gets to experience some of the stuff like a kid does. It's a lot of fun to experience it through a kid's eyes. And I think I'm going to post the uh, Let's Play if you guys want to see it for the patrons at patreon.com slash today. Yeah. Uh, so before we get out of here, anybody else have thoughts about the MacBooks? Or actually, 
I know uh, Mr. Tunnell there in the uh, uh, mumble room wanted to also say uh, give a little bit of uh, love towards the uh, the Zen books. Are are you still in there? Uh, I'll see him. Oh, I think he. Uh, I think he had to leave. No, I think he left. But uh, he wanted to say, if you're looking at MacBooks, you should consider the Zen books. I think I probably summarized what he was going to say. He had particular models in mind, but oh, okay. he would say, check out the Zen books. Um, so do you want to continue on? And, we'll, and then we'll just wrap up the show, and then we can cover it in the post show. How it up? That sounds up. great. Okay. All right. So that brings 158 to a, clo- to a close. Ryan, uh, thanks a bunch for coming. And, man, you are welcome to join us any week you have time. We're always live at this time. So it was good to hear from you, and I definitely look forward to what you're doing in the future. Where should people follow you if they want to kind of stay tuned? Sure. Yeah, they can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Lee Sipes, R-Y-A-N-L-E-E-S-I-P-E-S. And thanks for having me on, Chris. I love it. You bet, man. And why don't you link that in the IRC so that way I can uh, easily throw it in the show notes too so that way people can lazy web that and uh, they don't have to worry about spelling. All right. That brings us to the end of this week's Unplugged. I tell you what, Wes, I'm damn impressed. I I think you have so far essentially completed every damn – ridiculous challenge I've thrown at you during the um, show, dude. Almost, anyway. Coming I mean, close. Y- well, I mean, this is pretty much in there. I think the dedicated graphics is within your reach, man. I I, hopefully. I am. Wow, wow. You, I, okay. All right. If you'd like to show up live, it's a lot of fun. Join us over at jblive.tv. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get it converted to your local time zone. Don't forget to follow me at Chris Elias and at Jupiter Signal for the network. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com is where you go for feedback, and we'll see you right back here next Tuesday. people who like to mess with computers. All right, jbtitles.com. Thank you, everybody. It was a fun show. I really enjoyed that. And also, sincerely, happy birthday to Debian. Uh, I really appreciate Debian. I mean, it's not only has it been the basis of some of my most uh, enjoyed and used OSs and continues to be the basis for my favorite server platform, Ubuntu, but also I think it really was a big part of why I got into Linux. So mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you, Ubuntu. Thank you, Mumble Room. Thank you, Chat Room. Now let's go boat! All right, so where are you at with that thing? Uh, oh, I've got it booting. I'm making sure the bootloader is oh. actually working and uh, getting the Wi-Fi back up. Nice. All right, and let's we'll go. see about the uh, proprietary driver. JB Titles, JB Titles. Won't so this is, this is a MacBook with an NVIDIA chip in it? Yes. Yeah, I think it's a 750, I think, or a 760. And is this a new computer or one? No, no, no. It's, a, it's, a, it's one that I used uh, back in like uh, before, I think even before I hired Rikai uh, for editing. And then once Rikai came on board, he 750M. had... 750M. Okay, 750M. He got the dedicated Mac, and then this sort of became like... Every time I wanted to do a comprehensive video editing project, this is my machine I would go to and still do to some degree. But I've been transitioning to KDN Live more and more. So I've had right. this sitting around and it's a late 2013 model. That I, And I actually think with an old MacBook, you have a better success rate with a slightly older model, which is 
kind of bears out why I think you'll probably see more of these showing up on eBay when the new model comes out because it's literally been too long. And so they'll probably – people throw their old models on eBay and you might have Linux users who want a particular build quality of a machine grabbing these and snapping these up perhaps. So this is a Pro 15 of some description, is it? Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a, tw- it's a late 2013 MacBook Retina 15-inch with a 750M and the one terabyte SSD, PCI SSD, and 16 gigabytes of RAM. And Wes, right. did you decide on a bootloader? Uh, well, right, yeah, right now it's just using the built-in EFI. So like when you hold down the option key or whatever it is? the That's what I'm working on confirming for Interesting. You. But uh, we might just install uh, Refind anyway. Yeah, I'll look at you. Because look it's at awesome. You. Uh, look at it that. Would be in- it would be interesting to compare battery life between the systems. Yes, it you would. You know, TLP yes. installed and all. And it would really interest me. Yeah, I because absolutely Because they say Linux that. is not well optimized for these well, kind of computers. Well, to be fair, the cards are definitely stacked against Linux. However, I was reading the Arch Wiki, and it appears that LM Sensors now has some support. But, see, I, honestly, the, the core issue why I've never really been super compelled to do this uh, is the way Macs are built. They are Intel machines, absolutely, but they use a completely different power management and, and cooling management architecture than a standard desktop PC. And, and honestly, if I were Apple, I would too, because ACPI and all of that is just total shit. So what Apple did is they created the SMC controller. And the SMC controller is both hardware and software. And the software component is only available in Mac OS X. There's no open source equivalent to it because Apple holds all of the information and the SMC controller is used by Mac OS X to escalate the fans with CPU usage. So the OS is constantly monitoring the demands and predicted demands, the predicted demands, if you can, if you can even believe that, of the OS workload based on your average workload. And it preemptively throttles the thermal management of the Mac based on whatever metrics that Apple can, has come up with with their black magic. And there's just literally no way to translate that to Linux or Windows. It's it's the same problem for boot camp users who decide to run Windows 7 to 10 on their Mac hardware. They have the same exact issue. And um, in the past, what I had done is I got a program called SMC Control. And SMC Control is a Mac OS program. What you do is you can use SMC Control to hard set your fans to a certain RPM. So that way, at least oh, there's, nice. there's some thermal cooling. Because otherwise, what happens is without the SMC controller kicking in via software ignition, then the thermal limits of the actual hardware are what yeah, dictate the not what you want. No. So when you actually get to the full thermal limits of the Intel i7 processor, that's when the fans cool. When you get to the thermal limits of the GPU, that's when the fans kick on. So by using SMC controller in Mac OS X... I could set the fans at a steady like 5,500 RPM or 4,000 RPM depending on my workload and then restart in the Linux. If you shut down, then the SMC controller reset. And so if I booted from a cold boot right into Linux, I have no fan control. But if I, if I would first boot into Mac OS and then use SMC control, which is a third-party utility that only supports most Macs, and then use that <laughs> to set the fan and then reboot from that into Linux – I could have proper thermal management. So uh, one of the things that appears to have changed since I had to do that rigmarole was LM Sensors appears to have some capacity to control the thermals on the MacBook now. And so that could make a significant difference in battery life. And it's absolutely an area I'm going to test versus Mac OS, um, whatever the current release is. 
So Thanks. I was just looking on eBay in the UK at that spec, and they still sell used for around £1,200, which is about $1,500. Isn't it amazing? See, I think uh, Apple has always managed to have super good resell because they only, at best, release a model a year. It seems yeah. so. So you 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 just if it's it's sort of it's sort of like there's by their by their apparent nonchalant attitude towards their hard Mac hardware customers, they have created a very robust aftermarket value for the MacBook. Um, and but but every time a new one comes out. Everything shifts down a bracket. So that I believe this MacBook will probably shift down to about $800 once the new MacBook comes out in September. And this, a Core i7. So oh, is that still a current model even though it's been no, around for a few years? No, 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 no. But because but the current model will shift down a price range. And because this is a model or two below the current model, it'll this is going to come down significantly to about 800 bucks. I, that's my estimation. I could be totally wrong, but that seems to be the history. Is because this is like two models or three models behind. This is going to be the this is going to be the real bottom basement. Like, still get an i seven, still get Thunderbolt, still get Retina, still get PCIe uh, storage, but under a thousand dollars easily will be this. I believe that'll be the price of this machine. And at that price range, it almost becomes reasonable to experiment with Linux on it and just see. Well, what the hell. Because I, you know, I it's a it's a six to eight hundred dollar MacBook depending on spec, and it, well, at the end of the day, if it doesn't work, I could just do Mac OS ten with Linux and VMware, and so I think you're going to have a lot of Linux users that will pick this thing up because they the cult of hardware uh, worship around the MacBook. They'll pick this thing up. They'll try putting Linux on it, and so I was like, this is probably something that I'm going to get a whole new wave of emails about. <laughs> I'm kind of preemptively guessing that, yeah. yeah. And you're only excited about. Linux on Mac because the hardware is decent. Well, uh, mostly what it's come down to is uh, I want to start doing more remote broadcasts, and uh, I need a pretty powerful system to run OBS because what I need to do is I need to bring in I need to bring in a couple of RTMP streams, and I need to send out an RTMP stream, and I need to record. So I'm probably going to look at I so something that's four cores is probably going to be necessary soon for me on the go, and. The problem is, is OBS is available for Mac OS X. And if I'm not careful, because of simple practical demand and need of production, I might accidentally use OBS on Mac OS. I have to be careful. It's like, it's like somebody who, who, who's an alcoholic. I don't want to be around people that are – I got to make sure that if we have Linux on this thing, I just continue to use Linux. So it's sort of preemptively preparing for that. It's also because I now want a Linux machine at home – that has a dedicated graphics card. And that's kind of the big driver for me personally is all my Linux machines at home are Intel graphics. And uh, that's been fine. But now that I want to play No Man's Sky at home, it, it's since I already have the hardware, it's not like I'm buying the hardware. If, I, if this was me buying it, I would never do it. But because I already have the hardware, it seems like it's worth trying. Yeah, definitely. Right. And... Linux does seem to run pretty damn fast on it. Like it's 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 a it's interesting. You know, Apple's gotten a really bad rap for how long it's been since they've updated the MacBooks, and I've been one of the people giving them a hard time. But this is the 2013. It still feels pretty damn fast. It's once you go SSDs and Core i7 and all that. It's a lot of. But then it comes down to if you need things like QuickSync or other 
or, or or you know what would be nice is a is a is a nicer graphics card like a 980 or something yeah maybe. that would be nice yeah or even a 1080 yeah I've got a 980 I'm in my new entry where oh oh yeah how has the best stuff. you have the Athena don't you how has that been going for I you do. you it's epic yeah yeah I, honestly wimpy yeah. if I had the money if that that would be my preferred route to go hands down absolutely. See, I feel like I can get in with I can get within a, th- a stone's throw distance of something like the Athena with the MacBook that I already own. But I would, yeah. Uh, so are yeah, you are I mean, you running uh, are you running um um like a like a like a like a multiple boot environment on this thing, or is it just one distro? I, I, are you gaming? It's just Tell one me all distro. about it. You can probably guess the name. Um, I would. I bet. I bet I could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just Linux one distro. Mint, right? Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where's has got it? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's um one distro. So one one uh root disk, which is an NVMe uh drive. Nice. And then I have uh two one terabyte um SSDs in there. One is mounted as my home partition, so just for me. And the other is mounted under a separate profile that I have just for Steam. So when I download the Steam games, it goes to a separate disk. And what that enables me to do is if I want to re, you know, play on the desktop or something like that, I can just R sync that partition to the home directory of the steam profile everywhere else so i don't have to keep down because i'm on you know yes. wireless internet that's I a problem have i have at home too that is, a, that is a great idea it. yeah so you don't have to do it with a separate disk you just have a separate profile that you just use for steam and then you know you can just rsync that to your steam profile steam accounts you know on your other machines Sorry, do you log out when you want it when you want a game do you log out yeah, yeah. When I'm when I want to game, I have a separate profile because I don't have any, you know, file sync services. I have a very minimal desktop configuration. Sure, sure. I have the Compton manager going rather than Compiz or something like that. So it's it, it's specifically I am going to play a game right now. Have you have you so toyed I, with the idea? I know you've probably seen there's tutorials to have like a separate big picture mode instance of x running or you can have login you can have user sessions that are only steam big picture have you toyed with that idea um yeah if i ever make a um a box to like go in the front room um then i would do something like that but this is just on my machines i finished working i'm gonna play a game for half an hour log out log into steam and it it auto starts you know the steam client it doesn't go to big picture automatically because you don't always want that um, but that's how I do it, and it works very well for me, and it prevents me having to keep downloading gigabytes and gigabytes yeah. of stuff over and over and over again. That is clever. I think I might try that. Um, I also heard in the Ubuntu podcast you're talking about it coming pretty handy at the uh, Snap Sprint event. Yeah, yeah, so I lugged it along. So I took my Apollo and the Athena with me to the uh, <laughs> Snappy Sprint Excellent. event. Two last so the, the <laughs> two very so different one, laptops <laughs> two very different laptops and the reason why is because the um the power supply or rather the internal battery on the athena is really a ups that lasts long enough for you to <laughs> unplug the power in one location and walk yeah. to the other i mean location to be fair what is it it's, not it's probably what two hours two and a half hours yeah, maybe? yeah. it's about yeah, yeah it's about two hours yeah. yeah so it's not that but you know when you compare it to the apollo yes. which i I can comfortably get 
you know, over seven hours. I, I describe that. the Apollo battery life as um, I, I. It's one of those laptops where I open up the uh, I open up the laptop and I don't even consider when was the last time I had this on the power adapter. That is such a yeah. freeing feeling. It's yeah. so nice. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it, it makes that, it the perfect go to really quick at home laptop. Yeah, and the new the new um, Apollo you can now get with sixteen gigs of RAM as well, which oh, is quite tasty. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I was using the Athena uh, for building snaps because you can now build uh, use Snapcraft to um, build your snaps in LexD containers. So you oh, can really? have multiple snaps building at the same time. <laughs> so consequently, I, I was it. working on a snap, start that building, switch to a different workspace, work on a different snap, start that building. And at one point I had seven or eight snaps building <laughs> because That's you know, great. it just had loads of yeah. loads of disk performance. Yeah. It's yeah. got 64 gigs of RAM. It can do eight threads. It was mm. just belting yeah. through that that would be so the perfect it's... that's the perfect obs remote rig for me so down the road that might yeah. be where i go i actually yeah. while, I, while i while i'm picking your brain um so i've been looking at pod publish and uh i have a secret project in the works that i think i want to use pod publish for um, okay. and i i wonder how hard is, do you think i'm thinking about enlisting somebody in the community to make some changes and i wanted to bounce it off you one of the things I would like to do is because uh, I believe the pod publish, uh, um, if I understand correctly, uh, one of the one of the files that it will output is a like we've talked about before is an MKV ready for YouTube that takes the audio track and then takes a still image for that episode and Correct. and repeats that still image that matches the length of the audio track. Right. Yeah, that's right. What kind of changes do you think? It, I mean, I don't. They could be major. I don't know. Do you think it would take to make it possible to have it loop like an MP4? What do you mean by loop an MP4? Have a video that is just repeated through the length of the thing? Yeah. Um, I imagine that'd be quite straightforward. Yeah. Um, yeah, that should be quite straightforward. I, um, I love the idea of Pod Publish, uh, and uh, it's it seems like. Should I tell you the thing I wanted to do? Yeah. Using FFmpeg, there is a. I'm not sure if they're called filters. But there is a way to generate animations based on audio waveforms. This what I wanted to God do Wimby. Yes. was actually just have it, uh, you know, a spectrograph, you know, waveform of the audio <laughs> for the duration of the video. I have been trying to solve this problem since I launched. I, I mean, I mean, Rika might know. We have tried. We have tried video editing plugins that will try. They try to generate this. I have spent. I have spent good money trying to solve this problem well i found like half a dozen snippets of how to do this with ffmpeg and i couldn't achieve the exact result i wanted to achieve but i did find some reference stuff Hmm. so if there's somebody out there who wants to have a go at solving that that would be kind of neat because what you could do is have that overlaid on your still image. Wow. So you have your still image, your cover art. Yeah. It, it superimposes all of the text for the, you know, the the episode and title and all the rest of it. And then you could have that, um, you know, uh, spectrum going you, as well with the uh, audio. I, that that is so that is so badly what I want that I so badly wanted that I've given up on it and just I just I just assumed I'd have to I'd have to compromise with a MP4 loop because. There is the, the thing is is I uh, YouTube is a viable publishing platform for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, it works. 
for a lot of people to get around certain restrictions. It's also has a huge built-in user base existing. It's great for discovery. Just ask the chat room. A lot of them are in there because they found us on YouTube once and then decided yeah. to become podcast listeners. And then last but not least, uh, it may, it is it is uh, YouTube links are fundamentally just more shareable than an MP3 file with a certain time index in the MP3 file. And so if you yep. ever want to have your podcast shared with somebody else, it kind of has to be up on YouTube so people can po- pass the link around. But I don't want them just – I don't want to publish something on YouTube and have people stare at a, at a still image. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, so I would like to do the um, the audio well, what's uh, neat about it is there's there could be several podcasts now that end up using Pod Publish from a snap, and then if we make improvements to it like that, it could be several be podcasts slick. to get that. I, so Pod Publish, for those that don't know, is is uh, we've talked about it just recently, and I think last week's show. So check that out. But uh, it's a tool that uh, is currently installable as a snap. So I have it installed on Arch, actually. A surprise, surprise. And uh, you run it through there. You, you give it you give it your podcast that you've done, and it can output the files you need for people to be able to download, but also can create uh, the WordPress post and, and whatnots like that and has a INI file where you specify the different parameters and it, then it, uh, it makes it very automated. And for somebody who's very busy but has a couple of really fun podcast ideas up his sleeve, it makes it feel huh. more approachable. You know? A lot of that's just taken care of for you. Yeah. So that's I'm really great. excited. So um, I, I've got a fix coming to Pod Publish in the next couple of specifically the snap of Pod Publish in the, in the next couple of days. I've had some feedback from running snaps on um, different distros where there's an issue with um, locales and it can get its pants in a twist. So um, I've hmm. got a fix coming that will make that. So after more I robust. install it from a snap, it doesn't show up in my path, does it? Until I log out and log back in, is that is that? Is that how Snaps Yeah, it does. Right it, oh. should show, it should show up. Um, What's but, the command um, I run then? Because when I, I ran... Uh-huh. So this is a, <laughs> this is a, um, a, a implementation detail about Snaps. Yeah. So okay. if you have a Snap for, say, FFmpeg, and there's only one binary that you're ex- exposing from that Snap called FFmpeg, it goes path under slash Snap slash bin FFmpeg. Pod Publish has four executables in the snap. So consequently, the namespace for the binary is pod publish dot and then the name of the original executable. So in your path, you should have pod publish dot publish underscore podcast, for example, mm-hmm. and pod publish dot encode underscore po- um, podcast. And there's a couple of others specific to. Um, uh, Upload. Oh, one one was specific to when I uploaded everything to YouTube for everything even to podcast had done, which got us banned. So that was the don't use that because you can ban yourself. <laughs> it uploaded, you know, two hundred and fifty videos. Break, break your account script. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and there's another one that I, I forget what it does, but um, the main two are encode, uh, encode, and then uh, publish. So with snaps, it's pod publish dot encode underscore podcast okay and then just path to config file and in your config file you tell it where all of the um paths to your assets are and stuff Mm. i'll um, i'll send you a snippet of um i'll redact some bits of the ubuntu podcast okay any file because what we do is like uh nine tenths of the config file is just boilerplate yeah and we just have like six or seven things at the top of the file, which are the episode number, um, 
and the markdown for that episode oh, and I love a couple it. of links nice. and then it, it automatically drops all of those necessary markers into the rest of the configuration for you so you don't have to do a full you know edit of a, a clean file every time you can start you know with a template and just change the the few things mm. at the top and it, it makes you know turning the publishing round very fast what i like so we've about recorded this. this evening laura's already updated our any files for our show notes so they're ready to go mark's doing the edit this week which he'll do tomorrow um so we we turn around the publishing very quickly now yeah, yeah. wow well done and uh does he edit in audacity because that's what i would that's what i'm i guess yeah we both do yeah yeah so on the ubuntu podcast.org website there's a page called about the show and most of that page is actually how we produce the show and all of the software we use including the server stack and everything i i I encourage you to continue on pushing pod publish forward because uh, it's i haven't really been super interested in automating audio pub uh, podcast publishing for a long time and so i haven't really paid attention to it and noah and i and rikai uh, and Wes even helped in a little bit recently, have been really working on what we are trying to create a way to bring video podcasting up to an entirely new level using Linux and open source. And we don't, it's not an automated system, but it will be a technology stack that you use to create essentially super high quality, I, I think better than, than anything I've ever seen before, video produced podcasts, uh, even with remote hosts and whatnot. And so I, I, I like that you're sort of contributing at the audio end there, which is still super obviously relevant and something I'm just kind of getting back into. And at the same time, we're kind of working on creating sort of a, a stack that people could deploy to also make podcasting video-wise under Linux super straightforward, really high quality. So at both ends of both audio and video, we're sort of working on automating and creating the best product under Linux and I think that's going to be really cool for media content producers who want to be able to look at Linux and we may one day have these tools available to them that uh, give it an edge up over some of the other desktops. Yeah, and won't make them Woo. flee to uh, proprietary OSs yeah. just to publish. Yeah, because really if you can make it easy for people to produce their content, they'll go with whatever. And if we can say this is what you use on Linux to make your audio podcast or your video podcast, and it, it, you can make really nice reproducible episodes, it automates the process for you, it follows these standard conventions, and this is, this is I think, uh, something that the Mac has sort of gotten the default nod to for a long mm-hmm. time, and maybe, maybe, maybe we'll make a little bit of a difference. You know what didn't make it into my NVIDIA Shield TV review because it didn't even cross my mind to try this until I was just in my Google Dashboard recently. And I was – you know in Google Dashboard you can go back and you can play back all of your um, dictation. So whenever you dictate to the keyboard, you, it'll it, – Google actually keeps a recording oh, of that. Yep. And you can play it back and it's kind of interesting because I play it back sometimes and I hear my kids in the background and stuff like that. And it's like oh, – it's almost like a little time capsule up on Google, a creepy little time capsule. And so I decided to play back some of the recordings from the NVIDIA Shield TV, and the audio is super, super bad. Oh, really? And I didn't, you know, I didn't think to, I didn't think about this in the review because it just didn't seem like something to, it's not something you've had to think about before. Right. How good is the microphone so that way you can do voice dictation? Because that's a key way you interact with the NVIDIA Shield TV. Like all YouTube searches, it kind of says, you know, just hold this button down and talk to it, and then it'll search. And uh, one of the things I discovered and the reason why I, I, I realized there might be something going on is I noticed that it started detecting Hadia's speech 
but not my speech. Oh, weird. So I would give it to her. She could search for things, but I couldn't search for things. Hon, will you search for me again? It, It'll get old really fast. It is. It is. It is very embarrassing, actually, because it's like I sit there and I'll try like three or four times, and I start saying it very. I try to enunciate <laughs> yeah, very right. clearly, and then I have to give it to her, and she just says it once, and then it's fine. <laughs> uh, so it's like yeah, you don't even exist, Chris. I, I was like a certain pitch. Let's see. That was about. I'm trying to figure. Out, it doesn't tell me. It doesn't really break it down uh, by device. Which devices I was doing. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Looking at some of the things I've said is is kind of funny. Uh, but the, what I disco- what I discovered is that uh, the audio is really really scratchy from the Nvidia Shield remote. It just has a really crappy crappy. That is unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, It'd be see. interesting for Google to have like a you know an evaluation of just like evaluating these as they come in and giving you like an yeah. idea of this device has a you know a nice little bright colored meter or something. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I was trying to see if I could find an example for you. Uh, this might be it. Yeah, Android TV. So let's see. This is me saying Starbound. Starbound. Oh, that's Adia having to say Starbound because it wouldn't work for me. She says it so well. Yeah, well, see, came, came, you could hear it wasn't very good, but uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Sage Brown? Sage Brown. It does sound like Sage Brown, doesn't yeah, it? it? does. Sage Brown. And here it says it got total chaos. See how you can't you can't understand me at all. You can't understand what I'm saying at all. If the microphone is just horrible. THR roundtable. And there it got THR roundtable. THR roundtable. And there, because I think you hear it cut out right there? Yeah. THR roundtable. Oh weird. Yeah, yeah. It's just so I and then here's me. Starbound. Yeah, I got that one clearly. Okay, Google. Yeah, and that one's from my phone. You hear how much better mm-hmm. that one is. <clears throat> so that's one thing. I don't. It's a. It's a weird thing to amend to a review, but I just kind of figured it out I recently. Like it. And it really, All the details. It really depends on where you where you hold it too. Yeah, and I, yeah, I was, and I guess I also just revealed that I'm watching YouTube videos about Starbound. God, that's sad. I didn't. I didn't mean for that. All right. I'm excited to announce that Wes is in the market for a new Switch. That's right, everyone. Aha! A new networking Switch at home. And I have frames. They need to go places. It's important that they get there quickly. What, do you, <laughs> what is in your requirement list for a new Switch? Quiet? How important is quiet? Not that important. It's oh, going in a closet. Look at you with the dedicated networking closet. I mean... It's also there's a lot of other things in that closet, but I mean there's also going to be a, there's going to be a switch in there. So. By dedicated, I mean the closet. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So uh, managed. Yes, I would like a managed VLANs and all that shenanigans. Yes, that would be nice. <laughs> I don't I don't have like a huge need of a crazy number of ports, but what is your but I would like what is your like base hmm? base amount of ports? Probably sixteen, but I could get away with eight if it was a nice. And, and we're what we're talking uh, uh, hundred megabits good. Absolutely not, yeah. Chris. I need gigabit. <laughs> My upstream is gigabit. I need gigabit internally. Oh yeah, you do. So yeah, you do. That's really why I'm doing it. It's like before everything Your I had didn't matter. Firewall has gigabit networking on it. Not my current Edge device, but I'm going to replace that with a, a tower I have set up. I just got a new Intel dual port NIC that I put in, which I have not set up yet. It's just sitting there. I can see it in LSPCI, but I haven't Man, played with it yet. I feel like this is a, we might have an episode topic in the making because you're going to do what? Straight up Linux, right? Mm-hmm. That's the intention. 
I'm going to try seeing out, seeing how, if I can just do that and uh, how it'll wow. work. Wow. Wow. So maybe I'll regret it. Maybe I'll convert it to a PF sense box. I could always spin that up. If and, you remind me before you go, uh, I have a, uh, I have a switch you could take a look at that you might want to consider. It's a silent gigabit switch. Of course, you don't care about noise too much, but boy, have I learned my lesson on that one. Mm. Um, and it's worked really well here in the studio for us. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I will have to look at that. Fanless too, which is super nice. Yeah. Actually, that might be what it is, the anime, the Netgear uh, GS724. Uh, that might be exactly it. In fact, uh, if somebody would find that on Amazon and ping Angela with it, that's she needs that too. <laughs> so, also, I love the HP switches. So, shout out to Sonic Seven Eleven in the chat room for mentioning the HP nineteen ten sixteen G. Some of the best switches in my. There was a moment in my IT career where uh, before HP switches, and then there mm-hmm. was a moment after HP switches, and I'm being dead serious. Like it, it was a game changer for me professionally because I constantly was battling with clients on the cost of switches. They always wanted to lowball that particular component, and HP switches came along and offered a super competitive product, like competitive with Cisco high-end products for a much more reasonable price. Mm-hmm. So what might be an $8,000 switch from Cisco was a $3,000 switch from HP. And now, and that price scale has reduced even further now. It's, it, they make a good product. So definitely love the HPs if you're, if you're really looking. I mean, so just as an example, right. I think Angela has like an eight-year-old HP gigabit switch, 24-port, fully managed. Uh, it's been running nonstop for all, uh, damn near as long as I can think of. I mean, no, it can't, it's, it's got to be, s- s- well, yeah, eight years old. And uh, damn near eight years old, Wes, and it's got to be one of the best wow. switches to this day that I've ever owned. It's a really good one. So big plug for HP switches, but also uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have to introduce you to my switch that I have in the garage. <laughs> 